When I named this podcast Twitter Travels for Pete over a year ago, I had no idea how prescient that name would be. How could I know that Pete Buttigieg would be nominated to be Secretary of Transportation by President Joe Biden? Secretary Mayor Pete Buttigieg. This exciting news has prompted all of Team Pete to learn as much as we can about transportation. And thus, welcome to Twitter Travels for Pete, Transportation Edition. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I'm excited to have an auto safety engineer with me today to talk about all things auto safety. This is Kristen Kingsley, who is on Twitter uh, with her professional consulting Twitter handle of K Kingsley Consulting. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kristen. Hi, Sue Ann. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, I'm sure you're going to tell us a lot of things that we need to know, not just that are just things that are interesting to know, but things that we actually need to know. But first off, you know, we're both Team Pete, and that's the, the common thread here of all my guests on this grassroots podcast. So how did you first discover Pete during the campaign? I love that question. I'm always curious when I talk to others who are Team Pete, uh, how they came aboard. Um, first time I ever heard of Pete was a couple of years ago when uh, he was exploring running for president. And um at the time, I heard a story about a mayor from the Midwest with a hard-to-pronounce last name, and it could have been something that was in one ear and out the other, but then a few weeks later, I was talking to a cousin of mine, catching up on family stories and, and family friends, and she said, our friend Leah's boss is running for president. And I said, what? <laughs> and she said, yeah, he's, you know, he's the mayor of South Bend and his name is something like Buddha Judge. And I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, Pete Buddha Judge, I've heard of him. And yes, that's amazing. That's Leah's boss. And then I thought, well, isn't that cute? Good for him, you know. And I guess the uh -huh. uh, the southern version of that is bless his heart. <laughs> oh, really? Um, that's what you thought because you didn't know him yet. Of course, you know, that's really ambitious for a small town, I guess, midtown mayor to run for president and especially somebody with such a hard to pronounce last name a lot of elections go based on name recognition but the thing is um you know as the weeks went by and there was an opportunity to read about him and hear him speak i thought leah is a great kid she's not a kid but i'm old so to me she's a kid and i thought she's really smart and has a lot of integrity she's really driven if this is her guy, then I should pay attention and see um, why he's the right candidate. And I did. And literally the first time I heard him speak, I was hooked. Um, I just thought that, that this is the kind of person that brings us all hope and gives us all something to believe in. And it was such a different tone from the divisiveness that we had heard over the last several years. Um that I started telling everybody that I knew and my my friends and family about him. And that's kind of like a um, a hard thing to do. I, I live in Washington, D.C., but I have a lot of friends and family on all different sides of the political spectrum. And so um, I don't usually get into politics at all. I, I I'm an engineer. Uh, I love policy, but I've always drawn the line at politics. But um 
Pete's was the first campaign I ever uh, donated money to. Um, he was the first candidate that I've ever kind of publicly supported and tried to get the word out about. And part of that is because, you know, he's not just a politician. He is about policy and he is about unity. And he's even said politics is soulcraft and it's moral. And it really brought me along. Um, and it made me care a lot about politics. And so I, I can't say that uh, I'm full born into politics now, but um, definitely having him at the Department of Transportation gives me something to be excited about because I think it brings a great opportunity for for my real, my regular job, my day job, which is auto safety. And there's a lot of work to do there. Oh, and that was so beautifully said, really. You, you echo so much of what a lot of us feel. And the, the great thing about this is even though the campaign is over, we still get to have all of that with Pete. <laughs> so, and it's even better because now, as he said today on uh, George Stephanopoulos, now we're into the governing, right? Campaigning's over. Now we get to actually do it. Well, let's let's get to uh, the topic at hand, which is auto safety. How did you become interested in auto safety? I didn't even know that. Well, of course, I'm not an engineer, so I didn't know that was a thing. That's funny. It, it is a thing. It's a thing that affects um, most of our daily lives, actually. And uh, I have to credit my high school physics teacher with um, kind of the spark uh, that got me here. And that was because after years of struggling with I took a whole bunch of math class, advanced math classes based on test scores, not so much based on ability. So I struggled for a while until I got to high school physics and saw um, basically math in motion, uh, what it can do, what you can do with it, what it means. And she was just really inspiring. And so I decided to become a mechanical engineer. I'm very practical and went through the motions in school, struggling again, because it was hard to, to kind of understand all of these equations and what they mean. Until I went on a field trip to a tow yard with a guest lecturer from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, and he was teaching us about crash investigations. And we were in this big old dirty tow yard, and it was hot outside, and we were used to being the nerdy engineers in the classroom. And he was showing us things like how looking at the damage on a vehicle can give you an idea of what this crash might have looked like and what kind of injuries the occupants may have suffered. And I was just so intrigued. I could not stop asking questions. This was the most interesting thing in my mind you could possibly do with a mechanical engineering degree. And so this poor man, I kept in touch with him <laughs> for <laughs> almost a year um, until I finally graduated. And uh he uh, he told me when I graduated, they had two positions open in the crash investigation division. And I applied and somehow got lucky enough to end up at the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which is one of the agencies at the DOT. Oh, and your first job. In my very first job that I started the day after my grad school graduation. That's fantastic. That's everyone's dream. <laughs> Oh, wow. That does sound fascinating. I love how you how you put that, how, you know, the mechanical engineering and putting that in motion. And and then I'm just going to put words in your mouth in the real world and everyday life and unfortunately death. Right. Um, and injuries just to, to see that. Was that haunting? 
Yeah. And that's the thing is when I started out, it was very much an intellectual pursuit. You know, I'm looking at vehicle design and how seatbelts work and how airbags work and what can we do to prevent injuries. But going to crash into going into crash investigation, you realize that you're not just talking about a math problem or a physics problem or statistics. These are actually people's lives. Um, and it is more common than you think. There are about 35,000 fatalities on our nation's roadways every year um, and many, many more injuries, of course. And these are things that maybe have not affected you personally, but have certainly affected somebody you know. At some point in our lives, we will all have either been in some kind of serious roadway crash or have known and loved somebody who has. And um, what became what was initially an intellectual pursuit for me became my lifelong mission. And it has been more than 20 years now that I've been working in auto safety. And um, I, it's been uh, more than 15 years that I've moved on to uh, crash avoidance technologies, policy development. But having started my career in crash investigation and actually getting to know victims and their families really did set the foundation um, to bring more heart to the mission. You know, after one or two years, I thought, oh, I'm just going to go to Detroit and make the big bucks after I put my time in here in the federal government. But then I couldn't. I was hooked on the mission and I believed in the good work that we were doing. And I really, really thought that this is a place where we can make a difference. And I still believe that. So what you were saying is um, if you go, if you get a job with uh, the actual the car manufacturers themselves, that's where when you said going to Detroit... That, yes. would be, that, that would be the big bucks. That would be the big bucks. You know, everybody knows that in the federal government, you don't make the big bucks. <laughs> um, most people do it because of the compelling mission. Um, but the thing is, I and I do some work now for the auto manufacturers. And I was very wrong when I when I first had that impression that, OK, they're just there to make the big bucks. In fact, um, when I talk to folks now about the importance of coming together, government industry and advocates, because there's a huge um, family of advocates and auto safety. I try to let everyone know, you know, we are all on the same team here. We all want the same thing. Um, and too many times we get wrapped up into, well, they're the regulator and they're the money makers and they're the victims. And we try to blame each other for not moving the ball forward. When in fact, um, the folks that work in safety, we are all there because we believe in it. Um, whether you know whether you're doing it from an advocate's point of view, a government point of view, or an industry point of view, we are all there because we believe in the mission. And um, I think that's actually something important that that um, Pete can bring to the Department of Transportation is helping to build those bridges, so to speak, um, among all these stakeholders that have a common goal, uh, rather than letting this kind of continued narrative of somebody is to blame here um, and somebody needs to respons be responsible. No, we all need to be responsible. And there's got to be a better way to do this. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you what the, the role of the National Highway Traffic, Traffic Safety Administration NHTSA, what the role is of that. So is it regulatory? So yes, it is a regulatory agency. And, um, you know, DOT is huge. And NHTSA, we call it NHTSA, is a, rel <laughs> NHTSA is a relatively small agency. Um, it's got about 500 employees. 
Most of them are at headquarters in Washington, D.C., but then there are regional offices all throughout the country because they work very closely with states. At its core, NHTSA is a consumer protection agency. They regulate the auto industry and they also they also enforce auto safety recalls. When there's a defect related to safety, they make sure that um, manufacturers have those vehicles recalled and pay for the fixes, the remedies. But because auto safety is more than just the vehicle, in fact, 90% of crashes are caused by human error, there's only so much you can do on the vehicle to help prevent these crashes and injuries. And that is NHTSA's core mission, to prevent crashes and injuries on our nation's roadways. And so there is a huge effort at the agency to focus on behavioral safety. So they have regional programs that manage grant money that goes out to the states to help fund campaigns like Click It or Ticket, um, Drive Sober or Get Pulled Over. So it's usually usually a combination of um, public awareness campaigns combined with enforcement. Um, But then there's also a lot of information that gets out from the agency to help people make good decisions like buckling up, Uh, purchasing a new car. So they have a five-star safety rating program where they crash test vehicles and provide ratings to the public. Um, There's a whole bunch of information about child passenger safety to make sure that kids are buckled up in the seat that's right for them. Um, Teen driving safety, older driver safety, pedestrian safety. So all of this is um, based on the priorities at NHTSA are based on science and data. They do their own, they have a huge program um, for data collection that's nationwide. It's nationally representative and it informs everything that not only NHTSA does, but also the auto industry, as well as um, NHTSA's sister agency at DOT is the Federal Highway Administration. So NHTSA has responsibility for the vehicles and the drivers. Federal Highway Administration has responsibility for the roadways. So they all work together. Okay, well, that's good to know because I did did notice an overlap, and you do call it a sister sister agency. Sister agency, absolutely. Oh. Well, and I did talk. My first interview on this series of transportation was with Jonathan French, who is a highway engineer. He talked about Vision Zero, which is um, I don't know if it's a, a a program that's it's actually an international it is um, idea that in the Vision Zero meaning that the goal to get zero traffic fatalities. I think uh, maybe you can say something. So obviously everything that you do is is working towards that as well. Yeah, and, and Vision Zero is a really outstanding um, program because it, the, the core of Vision Zero is that we should not accept deaths or injuries on our roadways as a price to pay for mobility. There's something called safe system design, and maybe Jonathan mentioned this, but it, we should assume that humans are going to make mistakes, and so we should design in anticipation of those so that the mistakes don't have fatal consequences. So roadway design, vehicle design, we should assume that humans are going to make mistakes because they do. And Vision Zero is something that it, I know he works on that in, um, where, where's he from? Somewhere up north, right? Maine? Maine. Maine. Yes, Maine. Great. Yeah. So um, it started in Sweden and is slowly spreading across the United States. I actually work with Montgomery County, Maryland on their Vision Zero program, which is kind of fun because as an auto safety engineer, I don't usually get to see the roadway side of things. But like I mentioned, it's going to take all of us working together 
to get it done. Um, and so I'm really happy to hear about people who judges support for Vision Zero because a lot of communities across this country can benefit from not just the program itself, but the opportunity to learn from each other of what's working in other locations that have already implemented this program. Right. It's, it's really a whole different way of thinking. And I love that. Don't accept it, that this is just the way it is. But the cars are getting safer and safer from, from um, what you're, you're working on. And I drive a, a 2012 model right now, so I think I might be getting a new car in the next few years. So what can you recommend? What should I be looking for? Now, you said the NHTSA <laughs> has information about safety ratings. Uh, can you just give a kind of an overview of of things people should be looking for when they're buying a car? Sure. So you are not the only one who is long overdue for a new vehicle. Uh, the average age of vehicles on the road is about 11 and a half years. And when we put new technology into vehicles, we estimate that it could take 20 to 30 years to make its way into the entire fleet. So okay. what I like to tell people when they ask me, hey, what do you think is the safest car? My response is always, the car with the safest driver. Because like I mentioned, the crashes are caused by the people, not by the vehicles. And we have made so many advancements in the last few years in motor vehicle design that if you're buckled properly, you're going to survive almost every crash. And so the real key is make sure you're driving sober, make sure you're not distracted, distracted. And please make sure you're buckled up. I think seatbelt use rate in the United States is something like 90%. But if you look at the fatality data, unbelted is about 40% or 50% of the motor vehicle fatalities. And so you can see that most people that are belted are actually well protected when they crash. And so please take advantage of the technologies that we've already put into vehicles for you. But there's definitely a whole bunch of new cool stuff coming. Crash avoidance technologies are going to ensure that these crashes don't even happen in the first place. There's a lot of a lot of cool stuff out there and a lot of um, misunderstanding of how these systems work. Right now, what's on the roads are driver assist systems. None of them are intended to replace the responsibility of the driver. Um, I know sometimes we see some photos on Instagram of people taking a brief nap while they let their car drive for them, but that is not actually no. uh, the reality yet today. Um, anyone who know, wants to know about the vehicle technologies that are currently out there today, you can visit NHTSA's website and look at the safety ratings because they do include information about some of the crash avoidance technologies. There's the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, IIHS.org also has an outstanding ratings program, but something that's very, very consumer friendly as far as the crash avoidance technologies go and, and a way to explain how they work and the responsibility of the driver is mycardoeswhat.org. Are you kidding me? Isn't that oh. cute? Yeah. So it's uh, very useful information there. And for those who are wondering well, why can't I let my car drive itself? I see pictures of people taking naps. I, I highly, highly suggest that you look into the Partnership for AV Education, pavecoalition.org, P-A-V-E, because there is a whole bunch of great information there about the different levels 
of automated driving, whether it's something that's going to completely drive you from point A to point B and you can, you know, study, do your homework, uh, take a nap um, on the way, or if it's something where you need to get yourself to the highway and then once you're on the highway, the vehicle can take over. But if it needs some assistance, it's going to hand control back over to the driver. None of those are on the roads today. What we see on the roads today are vehicles that are in testing, and those are being managed by um, automotive engineers and tech developers, and they are not intended for commercial use at this point. We will all know when those vehicles are available for the general public because it is a great opportunity to expand mobility to a whole bunch of people that don't currently have access. So that's, do you see that as an inevitable or, or just maybe some of the technologies, uh, some of it being inevitable? I think that we don't know quite yet if at some point in the far future, the entire fleet will be replaced by robot cars. That's kind of hard to judge. But I do think that in some locations where there are, where there may be a need for enhanced mobility, that it's a great solution. Okay. Cause I, it's one of my worries or, you know, when we have a, you know, what back to when we have dinner parties again, then, and uh, talking about, oh yeah, would you ever, you know, get a automated vehicle? No. Oh, for sure. I would try it. And then I'm always like, no, I'm so afraid of that. But so I, it sounds like I don't really have to worry yet. So I actually had a really great conversation the other day. Uh, one of the questions was, so for I've been in auto safety for 20 years, and that entire time we've been working on automated vehicles. And almost that entire time we've been saying, well, they're still about 10 years off. And it's never been about the technology. It's always been about the consumer acceptance. And so it's funny that you say, <laughs> I would never get in one. <laughs> um <laughs> And we used to say when I worked at NHTSA, uh, we used to tell the engineers that would come in to show off their technology, okay, we will accept this as road ready when your legal department is willing to sit um, in the back seat as mm -hmm. this goes down the coastal highway, a mountainous coastal highway in California. And then it is road ready. Uh -huh. Don't show us on a closed course where everything is predictable. But somebody told me from Consumer Reports, we had a discussion last week. She said, look, if a technology is done well, if it's reliable, if it's intuitive, and if it's effective, the consumer acceptance will come. You don't have to tell consumers what they need to accept. And I thought that was a pretty brilliant way of saying, that's not really the problem here. If you get this right, people are going to demand this. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what we're trying to do right now. Right. And then I'm assuming in the design, there are lots of um, safeguards or what do you call it? What is like a backup, a backup to the backup to the backup. Right. You know? So you have a lot of redundancies in your that's, system. That's what it's called. Thank you. <laughs> yep. Oh, okay. Well, you know, every time I, I'm, I'm in Minnesota and I'm driving on, on, on pretty um, scary snow and ice, I'm wondering, well, how would an automated vehicle do it? But then when and um, researching for this a little bit, I, I noticed that um, in the state of Minnesota is part of some uh, some projects. And one of the projects for, for CAVE, C-A-V, Connected 
Connected and automated vehicles, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So so one of the projects we're a part of as a state is winter driving. So I'm like, okay, of course, they're, they're not, you know, of course they're, they know that that has to be studied. <laughs> sure. We have to test in all different kinds of conditions, right? Right. Because that's the human, the human part. But when you say the driver, the safest driver, somebody who knows how to drive in winter. And when we get our first snow here and it's just like, oh, yeah, it's obvious some people just do not know how to drive in this, you know, <laughs> and that's what's scary. <laughs> oh, well, I'm in the Washington, D.C. area where when we get a half an inch of snow, everything shuts down because nobody knows what to do. <laughs> well, right. They should stay off the road then. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, what do you see as the biggest concern right now in vehicle safety? So there are some emerging issues in vehicle safety. Um, We've seen some kind of alarming things over the past year with COVID, where we thought with vehicle miles traveled going down, we would see fewer roadway injuries and fatalities. But in fact, we're seeing different kinds of roadway injuries and fatalities. We're seeing a lot more speeding and reckless driving. Mm Um, We're also seeing a lot more impairment. So impairment, especially from alcohol, has been um, a persistent issue. It's always hovered around 30% of the fatality problem, which is huge. Um, And it's actually gone up this year. And so I think that it's time to do something. And I am biased because one of the projects that I support is an alcohol detection system that will prevent impaired driving. But I do think that it's a broader societal problem in that alcoholism contributes to far more than just drunk driving. Even in pedestrian fatalities, we see that a large percentage of pedestrians are impaired uh, when they're struck by vehicles. And so you're not even safe just by saying, well, I'm going to pass the keys off or I'm going to get a sober Mm -hmm. ride home. If you're impaired while you're walking, you are also still in danger. So I think that broader societal problem of alcohol impairment is is of concern. We also see with increasing marijuana availability, um, whether it's in states that that reduce penalties or actually have legalized marijuana sale and distribution, people may have the mistaken understanding that it is safe to drive while impaired. And we just don't know yet. We suspect it is not. Um, there are no per se limits like there are with alcohol. We, we set the limit at 0.08. Marijuana affects people differently and it can stay in your system at varying lengths of, for varying lengths of time. And so this is something we're worried about. Distracted driving has become an issue with the prevalence of smartphones, of course. This is not something we have great data on. And so it's hard to combat especially in, at NHTSA and in the United States, we do everything based on data. We have to be able to justify everything that we do. And so okay. in the meantime, while we can't support regulation because we don't have the data, at least there are guidelines that have been put in place for auto manufacturers when they design systems that um, are, are engaging drivers or pairing devices to the vehicle that help reduce distraction. It's not enough. Of course, there needs to be some kind of a culture change, not with just impairment, but also with distraction. I don't think people take the driving task as seriously as they should. You're responsible for this sometimes two-ton vehicle, which could cause major damage with just a moment of, of inattention. Well, I always remember when, when my kids who are adults now, when they were taking their driver's uh, license test, the road test, and, you know, 
both of them had to take it twice. But on one one occasion, the examiner told me, well, we have to be strict. They're driving a, v- a weapon. <laughs> so I've never thought it that way. <laughs> They're driving a weapon. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, this, you know, you can really hurt somebody else. And right. you could be fine. And that responsibility is, yeah. The culture, um, that's like also the... Like you said before, is uh, your your car is only as safe as the driver is, and taking that personal responsibility uh, and the culture change. But m- maybe some of that smartphone technology will also change. Well, there'll be. A, I mean, there's there's more and more voice assisted. I don't know, but I do. <laughs> every once in a while, I see somebody who is like really, really. I don't know what they're doing. You know, it's not even like texting and driving, what we used to say, the kids. It's like, no, I'm not the adults basically doing Internet searches and on Twitter or Facebook or in their email while they're driving. Right. I remember back back when uh, Secretary LaHood was heading the Department of Transportation. He was great. His He would say, look it, just put it in the glove compartment. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't even give yourself an opportunity to glance over at it. And I thought that was great. Uh. But now we have, you know, you can play your music and do podcasts and, and then have it all, you know, downloaded and then playing. And so it's, uh, it's, it's out there. Yeah, but there are benefits too. I mean, technology can do wonderful things. I know that there have been studies that show that for truck drivers, engaging in a, in a telephone conversation can improve their alertness. And so as long as you use technology properly, um, we can harness it for good. That we do have to assume our own personal responsibility and take that seriously. Okay. Wow. This has been so interesting. I, I just have to know that. How, what are the things that you measure? Do you do you actually use crash test dummies? Because in your Twitter, uh, on your page, and then your banner is that uh, you're standing with crash test dummies. This is just like to you know satisfy my curiosity. Sure. Those are Vince and Larry, and they um, they are crash test dummies that were part of a, a public awareness campaign, I believe, maybe in the 1990s. So that's before I worked at NHTSA. Um, but we bring them out every once in a while for like bring your kids to work day or other <laughs> fun events at the DOT. And um, that day I just happened, the, the people in the costumes were actually my interns. And so... <laughs> I love that picture. Oh, they weren't the, they weren't the real dummies who were going to go <laughs> no. through a crash. I did not put my interns into an actual crash test. So <laughs> nobody needs to be afraid of interning at DOT. <laughs> but I love that picture. Yeah. So um, and that is part of the program at DOT. They do crash tests, not just for vehicle compliance to make sure they meet the safety standards, but to evaluate cars for the um, five-star safety rating system. So, but when I began my career was in crash investigation, that was actually investigating real world crashes. So um, much more compelling, of course. And the science behind that, you know, so how do you tell a a lay person the kinds of things that you would um, be looking at as investigating So when you're looking at a crash, um, for many, many years, the focus was on crashworthiness. So given that a crash happens, how can we protect an occupant? And so what you want to know is in what kind of crash scenario, what motion would you expect the occupant to move in and what kind of systems can help protect them? So if it's a frontal crash and the occupant is belted, 
but they may still be impacting the steering wheel. Is it because they're steering wheel intrusion? Is it because maybe um, into the occupant compartment? Is it maybe because the seatbelt is not um, tightening well enough? If you put an airbag there, can you predict the motion of the occupant? Okay, so now say that crash is just a little bit offset or at a 45 degree angle. Is that airbag still going to protect you? And so a lot of the data from the real world informs not only what kinds of crashes we need to protect people from, but what kind of injuries they're suffering in those kinds of crashes. So it's been a while that we've really been focusing on crash avoidance these days. And so we rely heavily on um, crash causation studies to find out why our crash is happening and not just what configuration they're happening in. And so if a, a person takes a certain action, how, what does it result in and what kinds of things can be put in place to prevent that crash from happening, whether it's a warning system or whether it's a brake actuation and how effective are those? Sometimes they can be annoying. And even if they're effective, somebody's going to turn off that system. And so you're not getting the benefits that you anticipated from it. And so these are the kind of studies that are being done now to try to figure out what's effective. Intelligent cruise control, is that should that be considered a safety system or should that be considered a convenience feature? All things we're trying to figure, it, figure out now with the real world crash data. It sounds like a fascinating, fascinating profession because things are always changing. You're always thinking ahead uh, to what the next thing is. But this is what I want to wrap up with is my, my big question of what is your dream for the future of vehicle safety or, or transportation in general? Now think really big because, you know, Pete's going to gonna want to know. <laughs> he, he also thinks big. Yes, he does. He really does. I hope that... Um that my message makes it to Pete somehow, but I don't have any uh, crazy notions about that. I do think that there is a great opportunity um, for auto safety with Pete as secretary to try to build coalitions. Um, the first one I, I already alluded to, which is bringing together all of the state safety stakeholders between government, industry, and, and uh, the safety advocates, because we are all trying to achieve the same thing. And so let's just make sure we're hearing each other and supporting each other rather than kind of pooling against each other. Um, building coalitions also means cross-department cooperation. I mentioned NHTSA has a sister agency at Federal Highway, but there are also a lot of other opportunities where transit and roadway safety can be combined. Um, there are also other departments that can work well with DOT. Um, an example of that is for more than 20 years, there has been a portion of the spectrum dedicated to roadway safety for vehicle to vehicle communications, vehicle to infrastructure communications, and the FCC recently released that portion of the spectrum for Wi-Fi use. And I think that there's an opportunity um, with Pete Buttigieg being secretary to raise the profile of DOT uh, so that folks can understand the importance of transportation and roadway safety and um, that that may not seem like a big deal to give away that portion of the spectrum, but that is one of the rare things that industry regulators and the safety advocates all agreed on was important for roadway safety. And so I hope it's not too late 
for that. But the other, I think, biggest thing that I I hope to see with the new leadership at DOT is to instill a trust in government that I think has been missing for a long time. People are hesitant. They don't know who to listen to. They don't know uh, what advice to take. Um, I see a parallel between vaccines for COVID and the early days of seatbelt use. Nobody trusted the government in telling them that they needed to wear their seatbelt. I think that's also, yeah, I think that's also true with driver distraction. I, I wish we could say that the impairment issue has been solved, but it has not. Nobody wants the government to tell them what to do. And so I think building trust in our government institutions is going to go a long way and in our government employees. For a long time, um, federal employees have kind of taken a bashing um, that, you know, they don't really get a lot done. And I think because of constant scrutiny and changes in leadership, that might be true. And so hopefully at a place like DOT where it's absolutely bipartisan, transportation affects everybody, then there can be a little bit of a shift there and folks can be proud of what they do. And the result might actually be a conversion to some future former Republicans. Ah, oh, I just love what you said. Uh, I have just uh, hearing about all the departments that can be working together and that need for it. And I, I think Pete definitely is the one is the one to achieve that. I think so, too. I have a lot of hopes. Now, back to my question about the future. What is your dream? Uh, well, I have to stick with my gut and say that the work that we're doing to reduce impaired driving is um, much closer than than uh, automated driving, and uh, it may even be needed for automated driving. So this technology is going to prevent alcohol-impaired driving. It's called the Driver Alcohol Detection System for Safety, and this is um, being developed by a broad coalition um, of and supported by a broad coalition of the auto manufacturers, both in the United States and um, internationally. So I think that's something that I'm very excited about. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Kristen. This has been fascinating. And I know my listeners are going to think twice before they get into their cars because cars are only as safe as the driver. That's right. Thank you so much for having me, Sue Ann. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Twitter Travels for Pete, Transportation Edition. I hope you learned something new. I know I did. 